Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Uh, Thanks for being here. It's great to see everybody here. Before I get into um, my message, I'm going to take a minute and pray, just to ask you to pray with me. Um, you know, one of the things about, as John mentioned, in a few weeks, or you know, in a little over a month, trying to get back inside every week, it, it feels a little bit like relaunching a church, honestly, and, and so we're, uh, we get to evaluate everything, and one of the things about service is just kind of lamenting that we haven't had a time specifically in the service to pray for something specific about our church, our city, our country, and that we're trying to figure out a way to incorporate that, and I'm going to take a minute because it's been such a crazy week um, in our country uh, to pray for a few things that have gone on between the trial in Minnesota and um, Dante Wright in shot in Minnesota and the, the boy in Chicago and the Indianapolis deal and the protests and the, that trial going to jury in Minneapolis this week, just praying for God's mercy on that. So please pray with me. Father, I think of Jesus Jesus us to pray that um, your kingdom would come and your will would be done. And I think of uh, so many things that have happened, are happening in our country right now. Um, these situations and the people involved in them and not knowing what to pray for in each of those situations, we pray for that, Lord. I pray for peace, for folks that are in turmoil, um, for justice, for folks that are suffering, for comfort, for those experiencing tragedy. And I thank you for the hope that you've given us in Christ. I thank you that you are a God that is familiar with suffering, and yet a God that raised Jesus from the dead, um, and a God who is about overcoming and so we pray for that, Lord, make us sensitive to the people around us, and we pray that your, your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, we are in, this is now week 15 of a series that we've been in since Christmas called Connecting the Dots, and so if you're new to this, um, either here or online, uh, we've been, we decided to go through the whole Bible in 20 weeks, um, and, and we're three quarters of the way through that, four weeks left after this. We've done it along with the reading plan and the YouVersion uh, app where people have been reading through um, you know, chunks of the Bible together. And now we get to the, the point where we are at uh, the Apostle Paul, who is just a giant figure in, in the Bible and the history of the church. If it weren't you know, for Jesus, but if it weren't for Paul, we're not here having this conversation right now on how God used Paul. And so I'm going to talk today about the mission of Paul, next week about the message of Paul, and the week after that about the legacy of Paul. Um, and I'm going to preach out of a passage in Acts chapter 21. It's on your sheet if you're here in person. If you're at home, pull out your Bible, your phone, whatever, and, and pull up Acts 21, um, verse 7. And I love this story. I love this passage. I've wanted to preach this for a long time, and this just gave me the chance to do it because it's, it's just a real, it's in the flow of a story. It's very personal. It's very emotional, and it's, it's really meaningful. So here's the passage, Acts chapter 21, verse 7. When... We had finished the voyage from Tyre. We arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. 
On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. So I'm going to make three observations about the passage that are a little bit random, but they fit into the four applications, what this means for us. And the first observation I have about this is that the Holy Spirit seems to be telling Paul to do something, to do the thing that, or not to do the thing that Paul's about to do. Um, a little, a little bit about Paul. Uh, in the back of your Bible, you have, you have some maps, you know, and when you get your Bible and you look at it, you have no idea what these are, so you just kind of ignore them, and then you start reading your Bible and you realize there's no pictures in here, and so you think there's some pictures back here. <laughs> you just It's a thick book, you know, you need some pictures every once in a while, and you get to this one, and you don't know who Paul is yet, but you look at these lines, and apparently he took some trips, and so there's some guy named Paul that took a lot of vacations, right? And then you get to Corinthians, and you find out that on those trips... Um, he got arrested and he got thrown in jail and people beat him up and they threw rocks at him and they left him for dead and so they weren't very good vacations and you, you start figuring out about Paul. Paul, as best we know, was born in probably 5 AD, which makes him eight, nine years younger than Jesus uh, because Jesus wasn't born in zero. That was the biggest screw up in the history of history was the calendar. If you ever feel like you had a bad day at work and you messed something up, you didn't mess it up as bad as the guy did that invented the calendar and put zero then. So Paul is a bit younger than Jesus. He, um, he's probably about 25 when Jesus passes, uh, when Jesus is, is uh, crucified and rises from the dead. And he's probably in Jerusalem when it happens. Paul was a Jewish, um, he was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen, which means he had some privilege. He was taught by a guy named Gamaliel who was in Jerusalem. So he probably like went to a boarding school and, um, and then he was getting really good at what he did, which was being a Jewish religious leader. And to be really good at a Jewish religious leader in the early days of the church meant to squash the church. Like that's how you got to be good at what you did. And so that's what he was doing. The first time we see him in the Bible um, is when Stephen, and John mentioned this last week, Stephen is uh, stoned to death. And he was one of the original deacons in that early church. And they laid their robes at the feet of Saul. And Saul and Paul are the same person. Don't worry about it. They're just, they're interchangeable, Saul and Paul. And they laid their robes at his feet because he was overseeing, he was in charge of the execution of Stephen. Now, a, a year or two later, he's on the way to Damascus to get some more Christians. And, you know, God blinds him with the light. And this is so, I never really thought about this until this week. It's so Jesus to do this, to start out with, with Saul by asking him a question. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus did, asked everybody questions. And so Saul's like, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And Saul's like, whoa, that's not good. And so he was going 100 miles an hour this direction. He does a 180 and starts going 100 miles an hour the other direction. And he starts telling people about Jesus uh, right away in his late 20s. Fast forward to his early 40s, and that's when he starts taking these trips in the back of your Bible. The first missionary journey, he goes to what's now Turkey, um, was then referred to as Asia Minor, and he plants some churches with a guy named Barnabas, and they come back. He goes out on another trip, 
and not with Barnabas, and he ends up in Greece and plants some more churches, and then there's a third trip. And on we're, this passage, he's on his way back from the third trip. He knows there's no fourth trip, um, and we'll see that in a minute, but he's on his way back. It's his, like his farewell tour to all these churches, and he's going to end up in Rome, and probably in his early 60s, uh, from the best we can discern, he is um, he's executed by the emperor, who would be Nero at that time. So that's a little bit about Paul. Now, in these scenes, the Holy Spirit, like there seem to be mixed messages. So he's on this farewell tour. It starts in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And then there's a stop in Tyre, which is, I think, in Syria. And then the Caesarea is where he is in this scene um, that I just read. And that's in the northern part of Israel. And in Ephesus, it says, when he's talking to the church leaders there, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me in Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the Holy Spirit's told me it's not going to go well, but you got to go. Then he gets to Tyre, and it says those disciples, through the Spirit, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what that means, that through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to do the thing that the Spirit told him to do. And then in this scene, Agabus, who is a known prophet in the early church, and this is a great scene. This is what prophets do. They take his belt, and it says Agabus binds his own hands and feet, which I've thought all week I've been trying to figure out how Agabus does that. But he must have had help to bind his own hands, you know? And then he he looks at Paul, real dramatic moment, and says, the Holy Spirit's told me that that this is what the Jewish leaders are going to do to the man who owns this belt. And it is bad, you know? Um, But so the Holy Spirit has told Agabus, without saying whether he should or shouldn't do it, that this is what's going to happen. I don't know what to make of that. But the Holy Spirit knows what's going to happen to Paul. Um, My favorite, if you were tuned in last week, uh, John, who was preaching last week, um, had the kids come up with these Lego scenes of Easter and had a little contest. It was awesome. You know, my favorite scene was Caden Miller's scene because he had, his scene was the Last Supper And his comment on it was that Jesus knew that Judas was the one that was going to betray him before it happened, which means that Jesus also knew that he was going to go to the cross before it happened, but he did it anyway because he loves us. I'm like, this is a 10-year-old kid preaching the divine foreknowledge of God to you. And you should be more excited about that than you look right now. Like, that's awesome, you know, (laughs) that that that's what we got here. And the Holy Spirit knows what's going to happen to you before it happens, good, bad, or ugly, from our perspective. Okay, second thing, these are real people, and they really loved each other. They really loved each other. So in the scene in Ephesus, um, the first stop in this farewell journey, it said, when Paul had said these things, he knelt down, he prayed with all of them, and there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him. And these people love each other. And I thought, this is what we're made for. This is what the church is supposed to be. I had a day a couple weeks ago um, I think it was the same day. So Scott Haith, uh, if you've been at Oak City Church a minute, you know Scott Haith, and he's been here forever. And just he's a huggy guy, big guy, and he's great, and one of my best friends. And, and past John, the pastor that's on staff, and I, we've known each other for six or seven years. He's been on staff since the beginning of the year. I didn't see that coming, but I'm ecstatic that it's happened because he's a great friend. In the same day, I have meetings with those guys, separate meetings. They're not real intense meetings. We're not talking about deep personal stuff. But at the end of both of them, they're both like, hey, man, I love you. And I'm like, I look, it, all right, because <laughs> I'm not good at that. I'm just not good at it. I told Dan about this, Dan Fitzgerald. He's like, you should have done the Han Solo thing where you say, I know, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I thought, what if they had kissed me? What would I have done? But this is what, I know I'm bad at that. I am the problem. Like, this is what we're made for. 
In the stop in Tyre, it says when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and their children, accompanied us until we're outside the city and kneeling down on the beach. That whole group prayed together and said farewell to each other. Here, after Agabus prophesies what's going to happen to Paul, they're all like, no, no, that can't happen, Paul. You can't go. And he says, uh, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? And it's not that anyone's right or wrong in the scene, but they're all just heartbroken and because it's hard, because it's hard. And I thought, man, this is what the church is. This is what, as humans, we're made for. And this is what the church is supposed to be. It's family. Man, I love that, and I want that, and we've had, like, we've had a touch of that, but not as much of that. Like, not like that. Not like kneeling and praying and weeping and, you know, just um, all of it. And then even with COVID, it's a little bit worse because we're like, I haven't seen you in a long time. We're like distant family that doesn't see each other every, but every once in a while they have to reconnect, you know? But this is what you're made for. This is what you're made for. Third thing, there are too many non-essential details in this, this account for, to think Luke was just making it up. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts and he's a doctor and an historian and kind of a geek for the details and I love him for that and I love reading him for that. And so... He, um, here he says the wives and the children at that stop and tire. You know he has people in mind. Like he can see them. The wives and the children that came down to the beach and knelt and, and, um, and said farewell to Paul. And the Holy Spirit stuff is confusing. I don't think you record it like that unless that's exactly how it happened. And you're like, well, you deal with it. And Philip, this, this should blow your mind, y'all. He says, Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. And that's the house that Paul's staying in in Caesarea. Well, what does one of the seven mean? Those are the original seven deacons of the church were in the earliest iteration of the church in the early book of Acts, the apostles were like, we can't, we don't have time for the word, the ministry of the word and prayer and logistics. So get some deacons and have them do logistics. Well, two of the seven were Philip and Stephen. And Stephen is the guy whose execution Paul oversaw. And here 20 years later, he's staying in Stephen's best friend's house. That should blow you away. Like forgive and forget, but you kill my best friend and you're not staying in my house. You know what I mean? But he is, because that's the power of the gospel. And you can see it at work. And that detail is amazing to me. And then Luke goes on and says he had four daughters and they're unmarried. Who cares? What does that have to do with anything? Maybe Luke's single and he's looking. I don't know. You know? And they're prophetesses, which is a whole other sermon, and it's awesome. Uh, they're leaders and they speak forth the word of God with influence. And it's all just part of the scene. Now, Paul's going to finish his farewell tour. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get arrested. They're going to try and there's an assassination attempt. He gets moved essentially to a white collar prison for a couple of years where he speaks the gospel to some really influential people in, um, in the nation of Israel. He gets sent on this crazy journey to Rome where his ship, gets shipwrecked and he could escape but he doesn't because he wants to preach Jesus to the soldiers that are escorting him to Rome he ends up on Malta and they start a, a like a bonfire and a snake comes out and bites him and the natives on Malta are like that guy's a murderer and this snake is justice to him but then he shakes the snake off and the snake dies and Paul doesn't they're like he's not a murderer he's God it's crazy they're crazy scenes and he ends up in Rome and best we can tell he um he does preach to the, he gets a chance in front of the emperor, and as I said, he gets beheaded, but that's not, a, that's not recorded in the book of Acts, and it's not recorded because the book of Acts was written before it happened, um, and that's how we know how early the book of Acts was actually recorded. It's great. You should read your Bible. It's a great book. So those are three random observations. Here are four things that I think it means to us, and the first one is this. We have, we, if you're following Jesus, you have a mission just like Paul has a mission. 
All of this stuff is happening to Paul because he has a mission and he's focused on what God called him to do. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. So in that scene where Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus says this, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you. And I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and to place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus tells Paul. This is your mission, to go to these folks, tell them what you've seen so that um, they may turn from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God, receive forgiveness for their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Your mission and Paul's mission, they're like different contexts, but it's the same mission. When Jesus leaves and tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and, and um, make disciples of all the nations, all the peoples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We get the same mission. It's the, the ministry of reconciliation, Paul calls it, in another place. Now, the context for Paul's ministry required him to travel all over the world, to stay in cities for indeterminate amount of times, to get rocks thrown at him and to get beaten with rods and all these things to happen. Your context in ministry probably won't require that, but it might. And if you think it does, get out of here and go wherever he told you to go, right? Um, but, but for most of us, we look and we think, how do I relate to that? You know, Paul didn't have a real job. I got to work a real job, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, five, six days a week. I mean, Paul did have a job. He made tents, which in those days is probably like being a home builder, you know, like lots of people, you needed tents. And I guarantee everybody that, um, that he worked with knew about Jesus. And I also guarantee he made really good tents. <laughs> um, and we've talked about this before, that work is mission. Paul in another place says, whether, what, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And ultimately our mission is the glory of God, that we glorify God and that people are drawn to him because they see him in us. And work is one of the ways that that happens. And so from time to time, I preach a series on work about how in Genesis, the first thing we see God do is work and then he creates us in his image and calls us into his work. And so our work is a way to express the, the gifts and abilities that he's given us for his purposes and ultimately to give him glory through that. And our work is a way to love our neighbors and serve our neighbors because all work serves all work. And our work does provide a context for relationships where we can love and support and encourage and challenge and make people better um, and, tell, and just have context to talk to people about how Jesus has mattered in our life. And that is mission. Um, all of that has context for mission. You know, you either look at it as mission or you look at it as paying some bills and maybe a way to gain some status and buy some toys. It's one or the other. Um, so that is mission. Paul didn't have a wife. He didn't have a family. You think, I got, I got a spouse. I got kids. I got responsibilities like that. And Paul acknowledged, you know, that, being, that having a family can be a distraction from his mission. So I think we can, like, think, well, then that just doesn't count. But it absolutely counts. Like, family is mission. First thing God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that's in the context of being made in the image of God. And so he's saying, go fill the earth with image bearers of the one true God. Because the earth is supposed to be filled with them. And so if you have kids, and I want my kids to love and follow Jesus because I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but him. And they're made for a relationship with Jesus. And so I want them to be image bearers, to go out of the world. And that's, that discipleship is my 
my primary job as a disciple and it's work and it takes time and it takes effort. And that is absolutely mission. And if you're married, you have a spouse, that's mission. The first, every time I do a premarital course, my first session is about how we marry for happiness in our culture. It's just the way it is. It's okay. But we find somebody that we're happy with and then we add some time to it and we think we're going to be happy like this happy forever. How's that working out for you? Okay. It doesn't work like that. Because this is a little bit, it's good, and you're made for this, but it's a little bit of an illusion. But what you end up finding out is that you, like, you're made to express, you're made really for mission to glorify God through that relationship. And in, in order to sustain that, you have to live out the gospel. You have to be honest and tell truth and forgive and reconcile over and over and over again and be committed and be patient. All those things God is with you. And a great marriage, a godly marriage, glorifies God and is part of mission. Um, but you can either look at family as mission or you can just go through the motions, you know? Um, when it comes to just our relationships with the people that we interact with, uh, and we went through this a few months ago, but when Israel's in exile, Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah says, seek the prosperity of the city where I've sent you. You know, be engaged with the people around you. Paul, in a, in a passage that I'm going to go through next week, talks about um, that God has determined allotted periods and the boundaries for people's dwelling place that they should seek God. He puts people where he wants people so that they could seek God. And he puts us around them. And so our relationships are context uh, for mission. And, and part of the mission is just loving your neighbor uh, as yourself in the way that Jesus loved us. But, but that ends up um, creating an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Paul's context was, was unique and he was using the unique influence and knowledge he had to start all these churches. Your context is different, but your mission is the same. Now, Paul, this is the second thing. Paul's mission was the most important thing about his life. And that's clear from this scene and just about every scene in his life that his mission drove every detail of his life. We, um, so the, a, a number of women at the church participated in the IF gathering a few weeks ago. And one of the speakers was referred to as Pastor X. He is a pastor in a Middle Eastern nation where the church is just, is growing like crazy. And they showed him to kind of challenge us and, and they're doing an extended interview with him that we have access through, to, through something called Right Now Media um, that we have access to as a church. We purchased a subscription so we can get all the resources on it. Well, they're gonna post this interview. I think it's gonna be live streamed on Tuesday night. I want everyone to watch it. We want everyone to watch it. We're not going to do it Tuesday night. We're going to have a showing next Sunday night at 6, and then our home groups the following week are going, we're going to ask them all to use it as the context for their meeting that we can talk about it. Because this is how he advertises or they advertise it. Is the church in America asleep? Are we too eager to run home and watch Netflix rather than engage the, the lost in our own communities? And in the interview, uh, Jenny Allen is going to talk to this guy who's he is a Western guy married to a former radical Muslim who now together disciple believers in the Middle East. They're witnesses of a part of an underground church in the East that sparked the fastest movement of Christianity in the world. And I hear that all the time, that between the church in China, much of which is underground, and the church in a few nations in the Middle East, like God is doing crazy things. And I think it will challenge us through their context being different than ours. Do we live like Paul? Do we live like people on mission? Is this the filter through which we live our lives? Through which we discern like the best use of our time, our energy, and resources? Do we, do we filter that through? Will this help me fulfill the mission that Jesus gave me to make disciples? Or do we filter it through 
will this decision help me retire a year or two earlier or help pay for my kid's college or buy that thing or have more leisure? Which filter do we use more often? This message has felt a little bit like, um, you know, every once in a while you get a tire on your car that's supposed to be at 35, but it regularly gets down to 20 and that little light comes on and so you gotta find some gas station that's got one of those things and half of them don't work. And that's generous, right? Am I alone in that? The air thing at the gas station is one of the most frustrating things in the entire world. But you gotta keep blowing that tire up until you decide to get it fixed. And mission is like that. Like we go through times where we get it and we're living it out, but then it slowly leaks out and we don't even realize we're driving in a tire that's got 20 PSI in it, whatever that means. Um, and I've been thinking about why is that the case? And I just, I thought of a handful of reasons that are personal to me and, and I believe for you too, we're tired. Uh, this can be tiring. I bet Paul was tired. And so some of that's just, yeah, and COVID, and yeah, we're tired, and stage of life, and yeah. But some of that is that we're trying to do it on our own and not on the power of the Holy Spirit. And that should be something we, we need to try and change. I think we're distracted, which really there's a lot of bright, shiny objects around us that are really good at distracting us, and they're fun things, and they're even good things, but they can distract us and we can love them more than we love the things of God, and that's something to honestly repent of and something where we need discipline and accountability and encouragement to keep our focus on what God has called us to. I think sometimes we, we fail a mission because we don't know what to say or how to engage. And, um, and then I think, man, we are the most resourced church in the history of the world. Right now, media has thousands of resources on it that are awesome. Amazon? just everything. That is not a good excuse. If that's your good excuse, you're being lazy and it's just a bad excuse. Um, we don't believe, maybe our faith is weak and we're just not sure it's true. And we can get, you can get stuck in a rut in that spot and overthink it. And I think that's where Jesus says, if you're really my disciples, you follow my commandments and then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Like the way out of that is to trust him and whatever he's calling you to and see if he shows up is to keep going, and it's not you, it's him that's going to do it. Um, or with that, we don't believe that God's powerful enough, which I think we know isn't true. And I feel like every couple weeks, at least every couple months, I get an account of God doing something just crazy. But like the, like the leak in the tire, it just goes out fast. The latest one is that Whitney's sister had a chronic condition where she was losing her peripheral vision and slowly going blind, and they prayed for her. And the doctors say there's no indication of that condition that they had previously seen, like completely healed. We're going to make much of this in the next few months, like as the story goes forward. But just, I, and I can go back like months and just story after story, but yet we're like, God, will you do that again? And maybe the real reason we have trouble with that is because we're not in control. And so the mission doesn't get accomplished on our timetable. And so we get frustrated by that and we stop enduring. Or maybe it's just that we're scared. Um, and there's resistance. And that's, I mean, true. And there is resistance. Man, don't talk to Paul about resistance if you're us, you know? <laughs> but that's just reality. I heard someone, a pastor, talking this week, and I thought the way he did this was really smart. But he was talking about um, how people will say, and I get why people say this, like, your faith is great for you. Just leave it to yourself and don't tell everybody else about it. But he made the point that 
implicit in that statement is a, is a theological assumption. So implicit in this statement that go therefore and make disciples of all the nations is that all the nations need to be made disciples because Jesus is the way, the way life, and the truth. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That his, he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. You know, that it is for everybody. Implicit in the statement, hey, keep it to yourself, is the theological assumption that it's not for everybody else. So this pastor was saying, to you who say that, you have to understand that what you're doing when you tell me to keep it to myself is the same thing that you're telling me not to do. Like you're pushing your theology on me, which you don't think is theology, but it is, as you're telling me not to express my theology to you. And we face that all the time. Our mission is our mission because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. It's because God loves the world around us that we're on a mission. We didn't make it up. Like it came from him. Is mission the most important thing in our life the way it was in Paul's life? This has been a tough time for mission. COVID has been tough. People are, um, you know, tired. We're disconnected. People are hesitant. Even today, you're hesitant. Like, you know, can we shake hands? Can we fist bump? Can we hug? Can we wear mask? Like, we're just hesitant. And it's hard. Um, but man, God is at work around us. And people need it as much now as ever. I heard another illustration this week. I never heard. I love it. You'll hear it again. The guy said the truth is like taking a watermelon and trying to keep it underwater in a pool. And you can only do that for so long before the watermelon is going to pop up. Like you're not going to be, be able to keep it under. And he said he felt like in our culture right now, we are, we are suppressing truth. We're stuffing it under, but it's going to pop back up. Like God is at work. There's tension in all of that. And people need connection and people need truth and they need the message of Jesus. So here's a third thing. Our mission, our, your mission is going to require sacrifice. In this scene, um, Agabus says, hey, this is what's going to happen. They say, no. He says, stop weeping and breaking my heart. And then he says, I'm ready. I'm ready. Not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Uh, Paul wasn't just a machine. It got to him. Like, stop. You are breaking my heart here. He wasn't mad at him, you know, he's just pointing out it's hard. Um, but it was hard. He was ready to do it, but that didn't mean that it wasn't hard. You know, Jesus at one point says, um, in this world you're going to have trouble, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. And Paul got that and was willing to, to live it out and was willing to, to pay whatever it cost him, um, which it cost him a lot. Like he, when he became a Christian, lost a career that he was good at. He lost an identity with the people, basically. The people that he was going to didn't trust him because he'd killed some of those people. And then, you know, he finds his people and gets a church, and then God sends him out with Barnabas on these trips. And then he and Barnabas separate, and he goes out with some other people. At the end, he said he was deserted by everybody, and all this stuff had happened. But he knows that that's what he was made for. And we're made to live like that. Like, there's a saying that you hear from time to time or on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, if, if what you're living for isn't worth dying for, it's not worth living for. And I think we have a sense that that's true. And we get in situations that we don't choose for ourselves where we experience something like that. And we're like, man, that's, that's true. But it's hard to choose that. I will, um, I'll never forget a few years ago, we were, we were redoing our deck. And so I was in Lowe's buying um, a bunch of wood and nails and stuff that I don't buy lots of. And I was in the aisle with nails trying to figure out which nails I needed. And a guy, I think his name was Whitley, was helping me. And we got talking and 
he turned out he was a vet. And I looked at him, and I looked him right in the eye, and I kind of uncomfortably stared him down and said, tell me about that. But like wanted him to know that I, I wasn't just saying tell me about that. I really wanted to know about that. So we spent, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes talking about his experience. I'll never forget him saying, this job that I have now and where I am in life, it's, it's great. I like the job. I run the thing back here. It pays me well. I go home to a, a warm bed, you know. He said, but there's nothing like being cold and dirty and hungry and in danger with my team in the hills of Afghanistan on a mission that is critical. And I thought, man, we're made for that. We're made for that. And honestly, that is what the church is supposed to be. Um, people that are willing to experience that together because we're on a mission that is critical. We hear all the time that people want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves, and we are just of a mixed mind. Culturally, we're of a mixed mind, where we want things just the way we want it, but we also want to be a part of something that's much bigger than ourselves that we have to sacrifice for, and we can't make up our mind about that. The thing we're made for is the kingdom of God. The thing we're made for is you have to lose your life to save your life. Um, if you're really my disciple, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That's what we're made for. It's the movement that we're made for. And it requires sacrifice, but it's what we're, what we're made for. And the church is the greatest movement in the history of the world. And here's my last thing about this, is that your mission will lead to joy. It's not, I mean, it is sacrifice, but it's joy. Paul, at one point, says to the Philippian church, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. To the church in Thessalonica, he says, What is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming, is it not you? Like, that's his joy. To the Corinthians, he says, we are treated as imposters, yet we're true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, but possessing everything. And there's some paradoxical nature in following Jesus, where in the hardest of times, you find the greatest of joy. And his joy was the people who were the object of God's mission and the object of God's love who became the object of his love. Um, and that, that's true. Uh, I can think about just this church and our experience at this church. And the longer you've been here, the more you relate to this, that um, there just, there's hard things about planting a church. There's hard things about staying at a church, about um, being a part of a church. But man, there are families at this church that I think about and I think like their lives were changed, but now their kids' lives are changed and I bet their kids' kids' lives are changed. And there are generations of hopefully every family to some degree, but some it's more just visceral with, whose lives have been changed because of how God has worked at the church. And when I got into ministry, I don't know how many years ago, I thought if that ever gets old, I need to quit the next day. Um, and I think I would say, and I, and I hope you say this too, that that joy has gotten greater even as the things surrounding it have gotten harder. And I think that's just <laughs> the way it is. Paul says this to the Philippians. He says, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. As, is my, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether it's by life or by death, for, me to, for to me, to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. And so I want to finish this with a word to those who are following Jesus and a word to those of you that, that may not be followers of Jesus yet. Um, and my word to those of us that are following Jesus is this message, this part of Paul's life, I think it should be, it's a kick in my butt and I hope it's a kick in yours. And that line, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, what I'd encourage you to spend some time doing now, tonight, this week, in conversation with somebody is, is to take out Christ and to take out gain and just put a blank there and ask yourself in your heart, for me right now, to live is what's really there. What's giving you life? What are you seeking life from? What are you getting the most satisfaction from? And to die is, what do I really think about that? Because if it's, if it's not, in some great sense, to live as Christ and to die as gain, we can't do any of the stuff that he's calling us to. It's just like we can't do that without Christ being our source of joy and hope and strength and power and, and believing. And Julie and I were talking about this beforehand. She said it's like we're made to have it all. <laughs> the, we want it all now. And he's saying, no, it's, it's then in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of now that we're going to have it, but we're made for that. And so to die is gain. And to those of you that aren't yet following Jesus, honestly, like it's a hard message to get ready knowing that there are folks um, who, aren't, who aren't following Jesus yet listening because um, you're not on that mission yet. You're actually the object of that mission. And I know that can be annoying at times, you know? <laughs> and uh, this is, but the message is explanatory of like, this is why the church is the way that it is. Jesus actually said at one point, as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you church. Father sent me down here as a part of this mission, so now I'm sending you. We didn't make this stuff up. Um, we do it because the Father loves us uh, and all of us enough that he didn't want to leave us in our sins, and so he sent Jesus, and he gives us this message to give to you. I don't apologize for bugging you about Jesus. It is the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life, and with clarity, you know, he came to show us what life could be. He died on the cross because there's consequences to sin, and ultimately, God puts that on him on the cross. He rose from the dead to show us that he has the power over sin and death and to give us the hope of resurrection and the life um, in the afterlife that is the unbelievable life that we know that we were created for. And he calls you to believe in him and to follow him as a disciple. I will apologize for us not being better at being like Jesus while we live out the mission that Jesus has given us, um, but not for the mission or the message because that isn't from us. It's from him. And I would invite you really and implore you to surrender to him and to join us on it. Father, um, I thank you for Paul. I thank you for how much information that you've given us about his life, about his message, about his ministry um, in the words of the Bible, Lord, and the legacy that he leaves, which in some way, shape, and form is us here on a Sunday morning um, 2,000 years later because he followed you on what you, what you called him to one day on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. God, I pray that you would give us um, the faith and the knowledge that uh, the same God that called him has called us, the same God that empowered him empowers us, uh, the message that you gave him is the same message that you gave us, is the same message that people need, Lord, and that you are at work all around us and have called us to be a part of the things that you're doing. Give us courage. Um, give us uh, the, the power of your spirit. Uh, give us faith. 
Lord, and um, may the ministry that, that we engage for you, God, bear fruit to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.